Inside the halls of American hospitals, millions of people find comfort, healing, and support. But for many doctors and nurses, this couldn't be further from the truth. This podcast will dive into the shadows of American healthcare to investigate and uncover the abuse, control, and political power plays that leave the very people responsible for our nation's health broken and battered. We're sharing stories of professionals in medicine that have experienced horrendous treatment at the hands of a broken system that does nothing to stop the trauma. As the Association of American Medical Colleges states, long before the Me Too movement, women in medicine have instinctively banded together to counter a culture that too often tolerated harassment. From systemic trauma to abusive power to the unspoken rules of cover-ups and corruption, Mandy Irby and Phoebe will take you to the darkest corners of healthcare in America so you can have an inside look at bringing humanity back to medicine. Sensitive content warning. This podcast will share details of triggering subjects such as sexual assault and workplace violence. So if you aren't in a space to listen, respect your mental health and tune in again at another time. Hi, welcome back to the Pulse Check Podcast. I'm Mandy. I'm Hehe. And so we're going to, this is something that I just dropped on Hillary, who is our guest. And we'll see how it goes. But we're going to dig into what I think secondary traumatic stress looks like in nursing. One case scenario. <laughs> no pressure. But we'll see. A case study. A case study. We'll see where we get. Hi, Hillary, and welcome to the Pulse Check Podcast. Hey, you guys, look at us checking bolsas. Look at us. Look at us. Hillary is pulling curls on the internet and also pregnancy nurse. You can find her very active and very popular blog called Pulling Curls on the internet. And then also social media more aligned or specifically aligned with our audience. She is a pregnancy nurse and has a bunch of information on there. Hillary and I, so he, he, here's the backstory. Hillary and I were talking about nurses in healthcare today and what they need Mm. and our desire to support them where they're at. And Hillary has a couple times brought up these feelings. And so every time I hear that pattern, I'm like, oh, let's talk about this a little more. These feelings around hesitation and anxiety going into the workplace And I'm not sure beyond that, being in the workplace or anticipation of going back, we've done a whole workshop on it. We talked to nurses about how to combat those feelings and how to get through them and that everyone else has them. And I want to go a little deeper because you're still talking about it, but you're not at the bedside. Nope. So Hillary, I want to clarify, we're talking about like basically the Sunday scaries, but every single shift, it's like anxiety about being around your coworkers, not getting your first job. You have a job and we're getting this anxiety every time we think about going into work. Is that right? I mean, this wasn't a first job. I had been a labor nurse for 20 years. Right. Right. Which is why it's like, this keeps coming up for Hillary. When we talk, this is, this is a big deal. Would you, am I putting words in your mouth? No, no. I definitely agree. And I would call it, well, I don't really get the Sunday scaries. I'm like, yes, let's jump into this week and just slaughter this week. (laughs) So I don't know what other people are feeling with Sunday scaries. I was unable to sleep the night before I would start getting anxious around dinner time the night before, just thinking about going into work. 
you know, who would be on the shift? What kind of an assignment would I get? Would they float me? Would there be altercations with other nurses? Would there be, you know, would we decide to change our computer system again? (laughs) Right, right. What's the new thing I have to learn? They're always bringing in like these new, try these new things or what have we run out of? And you're going to have to deal with stuff that you don't always have or what sort of pandemic is going to come along. Yeah. Or just like when they change the IV catheter. Yeah. Like put the needle, yeah. like that's such an annoying change. And I don't think anyone outside of nurses understands how you're just like, you know, just swearing in your head as you're putting in the IV. Cause you're just like, ah, this doesn't work the way that I'm used to, you know, the last 10 years I've been right. doing it this way. And now they've changed it. And my patient thinks I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> it's a simple skill that I excel at until they change the brand and you have to learn the whole skill over again. And it seems like it does put doubt in in your mind and everybody's mind is like, why can't I get this? There's no support around it. It's just, you're made to feel like it's no big deal. Right. But it is a big deal. Those little changes. And it sounds like they happen very frequently or the potential for those are very real for you when you're thinking about the next shift. I think a lot of it for me is that the health of our moms. So I started in 2001, the health of moms between 2001 and 2020, when I left was in like such a difference. Like, you know, I didn't, we didn't code anybody my first 10 years. Right. I worked at probably busier hospitals than I worked at later. Like it just, just didn't really happen. Why? Yeah. What's the difference? Wait, I need to know. I'm not <laughs> medical, right? For listeners who this is your first episode, I'm a doula. I am not a medical provider. I also see these trends, but in a non-medical sense. My background, I have a master's in human development and family studies. So I'm looking more holistically, more body dynamics, body mechanics, whole person, human development, anatomical wise, like Hillary you're blowing my mind. What kind of things did you see over those 20 years? Well, I mean, just older, a Mm -hmm. lot more older. My first hospital, we had young, like I delivered a 12 year old. So we had a lot of young teen moms. We still had older women, but you know, 45 was not a frequent occurrence in the beginning, 40 to 45, honestly. And it's changed like that Mm -hmm. is not unusual at all. Now it was also much older by the (laughs) end. Right. (laughs) Right. I'm tired. (laughs) We would have patients in the ICU regularly. We would be, you know, supporting their labor and on other units because they had so much going on. Yeah. I can hear that they're, they're sicker and more problems arise slash more problems are created. Like the, the less nurses you have on the unit, the less staff, the less support, the less supplies, the more. And we, by the way, induced way more back. And we induced more back then because I had doctors who tried to induce people at 35 weeks for absolutely no oh, reason. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> so you're like the ones that have their own practice, want to be home by dinner. They're in the office all day. And then they cut everyone at four. No. I mean, she was just like, well, I don't want them to have their baby on the side of the road. And I was like, well, first off, have you, how many of your patients have delivered a baby on yeah. the side of the road? She's like, well, I just don't <laughs> want to see it. And I was like, we're, we were in a very Metro area. It's yeah. not like we were, we were in the Bay area of California. You had to drive hours to get into a place to have a where side an of ambulance the road. couldn't be to you. <laughs> you have a sidewalk friend, just get out, go on the sidewalk, yeah. have your baby. That's actually <laughs> Totally fine. Uh, so what you're saying about that doctor is exactly the transition that can take us right into trauma in the healthcare space. 
of providers because that provider, just that example provider out in the universe, that example provider was trying to control the situation because they didn't want anyone having a baby outside of their care. So they put the control over onto the patient. They tried to control the outcome by controlling all of the parameters around it because their discomfort overrode everyone else's and the mentality of the culture around do as the doctor says, listen to the doctor, people leaving the hospital, like getting medication. They didn't know what it was. One providers didn't tell them Two, they didn't ask. And it was just this understood thing that the doctor knows more than everybody. And you should just blindly follow and listen. And that's what we're told by our families and our communities. I will say she had very high end patients and many of them were very happy to be induced at 35 weeks. So there's that too. Sure. It does go both ways. And there's plenty of desire of control on both sides of the coin, (laughs) I think. Right. And kind of a misunderstanding that you can control the outcome in that way. I wish I could control so many things. Yeah. Yeah. Birth is just not one of those things. Oh, what is honestly, what is something you can control? I've got a lot of books on I'm learning. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe your water intake. I was just thinking, well, my diet and the movement that I do during the day, but not much else. So that was an example of what sounded like that person's, I'm not going to call it trauma because who the hell knows, but they had very real fears that aren't actually real, but they believe them to be real. We don't see them. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I think you would see this in providers who had a stillbirth as soon as they have a stillborn, especially late in, in pregnancy, they a hundred percent blame themselves. Just like the mom, the doctor is a hundred percent blaming themselves and they want to induce everyone at 39 weeks because of their fear, which I understand. We need to be like, this is a human who has had basically a death in the family is really how a lot of these providers take it. I hate it on social media where they act like the doctors don't care. They are devastated. Yeah. Devastated with you. All the providers are. I mean, as a nurse, I'm like, maybe we should be inducing everyone at 39 weeks. You walk out of that room and you're just like, how, how can I? Yeah. And then you see a 42 week pregnant person and you're just like losing your mind. Because we think those are related and we're trying, we're like scrambling. to say the same thing is because we have such a hard time compartmentalizing one pregnancy versus another. And that fear just, it, it like just permeates through us. That's so sad. Which is what Hillary's talking about. So Hillary, you've seen changes in IVs, older patients, demises, mistreatment by staff, all the things that you listed earlier. You've seen those happen the day before your shift, they come back and they're like, this could happen. This could happen. This could happen. To me, it sounds very similar to that doctor who somewhere back here thought the worst thing that could happen is Mm, a demise slash someone would give birth on the side of the road. They feel personally responsible for it, or they would internalize that as a personal responsibility that they could have potentially prevented. We know preterm babies come out. It's unpredictable. Sometimes it happens in the car. Not very freaking often. And anytime a preterm baby comes out unpredictably, it's a situation where you want to support the baby. You want to support the birthing person and the family. Like no matter where you are in the car, in the hospital, there's very little control over that situation. You kind of go with the assessment term babies coming out in the car. 
not usually a dire situation. Except for the car. Right. <laughs> Except for that, that fee, that $300 detail later on that you like have to add into your postpartum. You're like the car was ready. It has a, it has a car seat, but I can't get back in it. <laughs> and that is not to say that like the family's experience of that experience is not real. Very scary, terrifying, because what do we say? Don't have your baby in the car. It's dangerous. Don't have a baby by yourself. It's dangerous. We're putting our stuff onto families that are now like, we have to get to the hospital. We can't do this alone. It's dangerous. I actually tell all my friends, well, if you have your babies fast enough that you can't get to the hospital, most of the time it's like hundred, like that's the best case scenario, out. except right. for your car. So bring extra towels. Mm -hmm. yeah. No matter what. <laughs> and maybe your mental health and maybe your partner. Yeah. Like there's some, there's some processing there. Okay. So let me organize my thoughts. We're saying, okay, so we're comparing that provider to something that you're experiencing and you're verbalizing as well, which I'm glad that we touched on the fact that you are a step away from the bedside. You're not actively experiencing this in the same way that you have been maybe in memory or when yep. you and I talk about being at the bedside and you're like, anxiety, 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 <laughs> but you don't have a shift tomorrow. So this is kind of a different yep. perspective. And I don't have a hospital to protect. Right. Isn't that funny? <laughs> just the fact that that is even a sentence. Yeah. I was literally just thinking that like, wow, it, it is job. freeing once you don't have a manager that could look at your TikToks or whatever, or listen to this podcast and be like, what were you thinking? Why would you, you know? say that? Also, I mean, a lot of these hospitals are like three hospitals ago. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, we're not, we're, we're, we're kind of combining real people into this. It still, it still fits. We just yeah. talked with someone last week who said the same thing and maybe the week before. This is the third week in a row. Yep. The third interview in a row that someone has said the exact same thing in a different way. They've said, I don't know what I can share because my body is telling me I shouldn't say that. And I'm not sure if it's legit or if it came from the hospital. No, I don't care. I've been up caring. Talk about very traumatic stress. This is it. Like in real life, it's that feeling of like, am I safe? Am I safe to say this? I don't know. I don't know if this is learned fear or it's real life right. body trying to protect me. Right. So the symptoms of secondary traumatic stress I'm reading over on my other screen, according to the DSM whatever number that is, five, four, four, 16. Yeah. One of them, the latest one, because this is a this year article, which it, it's great. And we'll link it. There are four clusters of symptoms necessary for a PTSD diagnosis. And as you know, we're not doing that today. We're not diagnosing. We don't even do that. But secondary traumatic stress is part of PTSD. It's just kind of the Maybe you don't have a diagnosis, but you're having the symptoms, or maybe you don't have all of the symptoms for a PTSD diagnosis, but you can be diagnosed with secondary traumatic stress as well, which we're also not doing today, but I'm just going to read them to you and see what you, see what you think. <laughs> the four clusters, re-experiencing, avoidance, negative changes in mood and cognition, and changes in hyperarousal. I think hyperarousal definitely, because as soon as you've had something that was close to a bad outcome, you're just like, we're never going to push for four hours and then go to a C-section. We're never, you know? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Hyperarousal is looking for those similar patterns that you saw. And it can also be kind of, my thought was you were going to connect it to the anxiety the night before. 
but that might be negative changes in mood as well. Hyperarousal symptoms include difficulty sleeping, anger and irritability, self-destructive behaviors, trouble concentrating. I will say the longer I've been a nurse and we had a management change mid this hospital where we switched to a manager that didn't want to talk about feelings or anything, you know, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. So I mean, just anger, you know, we'd be in that Mm because we all like hung out in the break room until it was seven and just like so many swear words hurled at each other. Wait, <laughs> not like swearing at each other. Today's going to be a mm, shift. Look at the staffing. Yes, Can you right? believe mm, is on? Right. And I'd always be like, ladies, it is not even seven. Can we right. just try and keep it positive for five minutes today? Right. Right. <laughs> Save this behavior for 5 PM. Okay. Right. Yeah. There is so much. I think we hear on, on the internet, like the nurse memes, like there's so much callousness in that that I think is part of this secondary traumatic stress because outside of work, we, a a lot of times would like each other. These people, these nurses that we work with are family people. They can figure out life with children. They have a home that they like take care of. Like they're able to. Yeah. And they're involved in school. They have great kids. They have, yeah, they're not these like monsters that they are when they all get together and they're in that report room and they're anticipating the shit show or someone just like sets the tone and everyone's like, Wah. yeah. How much of a shit show is it? And like a mind fuck to have to be one person at work and protect yourself and to always be looking over your shoulder and to always be expecting the worst. And then outside of work, outside of the hospital, you're expected to be your normal self because people who aren't in healthcare and they don't see what you work in every day, high likelihood, they might not understand what you're going through and what that it's almost like two different personalities. You have to be, I would say not two different personalities. I consistently expected the worst every single place I went in my business, in my kids at PTO meeting. Cause no. I was PTO president at the same time. And I felt like I needed, because when I was trained, they were like, you have to anticipate the doctor's move, like three moves in advance. And so I felt like I was that to everyone in my house all the time. Like even at PTO, I'd be like, you know, oh, you might need this cover letter. So let me just provide it to you in advance or at home. I'd be, you know, or I would anticipate what my husband would need, or, you know, it it was the same person everywhere. Maybe just less swear words, probably at home. How did that feel? Like really was, did it feel organized or did it feel like, wow, this is a lot. I just felt like that's who I was. I mean, I started labor and delivery at 25. So really it just was who I was. I had a baby started labor and delivery and that's where I grew up basically. Like Mm -hmm. my normal. Mm -hmm. So much pressure that is very much tied to that culture and the idea of being a nurse and how we're taught is to be multiple steps ahead and take the abuse. Well, sometimes I look at myself and I'm like, how on earth can I anticipate, you know, a doctor's need three steps in advance because, you know, it's a choose your own adventure. I don't know what they're going to want to do. I don't know if the patient's going to bleed and they're going to want like those random OR meds, you know, those ones you only mix up once a decade. (laughs) Exactly. You can't anticipate that. It's not like they talk to you. It's not like you have a professional conversation of like, Hey, what do you, what do you see? What are you thinking? And then you ask them, what do you see? They ask you, 
and you're kind of like, it is never like that. You're anticipating a rock. The next move of someone who doesn't communicate with you only talks to you in front of the patient or over the patient. And often then I felt would blame me for things that I had zero control over that I didn't anticipate. Yeah. Like helping the patient turn and move into a safe position, but I wasn't like, they can see that with their eyes, but then I got blamed for not tying their gown. And I'm like, we're not tying it the right way. Their gloves changed because they had a weight loss and I hadn't been there in a couple of weeks. We hadn't worked together. And they're like, these are wrong. And I'm like, okay, well, can you see how I'm prioritizing my care for the patient? And you're over here complaining. That's (laughs) instead of walking in before you scrub up and being like, Hey, did you remember I'm a size six now? How about go to the cabinet? Like we don't have a tech in the room. It's just me. You can see I'm always working with the patient. But it would be like this personal offense that I didn't like greet them when they came in. That's abusive behavior. It's abusive behavior. And we're just supposed to continue to anticipate that. And I think you're right. That's like a lot to take in when you say you were like that everywhere. I honestly don't think that the doctors blamed me a lot of the time, but I would blame myself. I left and and then had panic attacks that I had done something wrong. I can hear that. And did you learn to blame yourself? Was that learned throughout somewhere, either your childhood or nursing school or the places that you worked? Is that something you took on yourself or are you like, I have no idea, but it, it was what happened. I don't know. Probably a blamer. I think nursing school, they pound into you that it's all on you. Basically like that doctor is just there to give you an order and it's all, it's your job. Hillary, I don't know if I know the difference between me blaming myself and the doctor blaming me yet at this point. Well, I've never had a doctor, like something that really should have been their job come back. Okay. Yeah, I have. Never mind. Totally. JK, little jokesy joke. JK, we just put that in the back, back depths. We put that in the back (laughs) shelf and here it comes. Yep. Ding, ding. I did have that reality and I put it on every other reality and also little things happened. And again, this is like abusive relationships upon abusive relationships. This is it. One eye roll. And I was done (laughs) one eye roll that that I had the wrong gloves. And I was like, yeah, they actually thought that I should have known that they lost 30 pounds. We haven't worked together in two months. Like all these things, those seem silly for someone to anticipate. Like I wouldn't, I should know that from never being told that, but that eye roll of like, I'll just have to get my own gloves. It's kind of like, are we in crazy town? Get your own gloves every time. I would time. then I would internalize that as like real, but it shouldn't be, but I would do that. Okay. So symptoms of so what about re-experiencing? Re-experiencing maybe like a flashback, feeling activated by any of the five senses. You might go back to when you've seen that before in an unsafe situation. I mean Every time the patient that comes in that says they aren't feeling their baby move and you're trying to get the baby on the monitor and you can't get it. I mean, thank goodness for the times that you put it on and it's just like right there and you're like, okay, yeah, everything's fine. But then you can't find it and you can't find it and you're going all over the place and you're calling other nurses and you're like, hey, and then you're trying to act like everything's completely normal. (laughs) Why? Well, because I don't want to worry the patient if I'm just crappy at finding the fetal heart rate 20 years into my job. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. How did you feel? How did your body feel when you think about it now? How were you feeling? I mean, just, I just hearing this. So <laughs> you could cry. 
I just feel like crying. Just oh, okay. Like I can just feel how stressed that is that you have someone that you don't want to let on that something might be wrong. It also could totally be me. I'm granted. I've been a nurse for 20 years. Probably not me. I'll go ahead and blame myself. Let me go grab somebody else. I'm trying to say chipper. Like, yeah, I can cry right now. I feel that. Like I feel, I can feel that. Yeah. I mean, you, just every muscle in your body tenses up. You're like flipping them. And then all of a sudden you'll find it and you're like, okay, yeah, everything's fine. And then what happens? We, we all breathe a sigh of a relief and I will stay, you know, I think it helps when you say in the patient's room, I'm sure everyone in this room was super nervous. I was nervous. You all were nervous. I'm so sorry. I didn't find it right away. Your baby is a great at hiding seek. <laughs> no wonder you didn't feel it. I couldn't like, that's totally legit. I couldn't find it. We're going to want to watch it for a little bit and see if it's you know what yeah. why why that is I'm gonna go get a vodka thank you okay so then Just you kidding. felt you needed to you still wanted to feel better you still felt bad no because usually once you get the heart rate on then you had all these other things to do I don't know that I really felt that bad at that point I was just so grateful that there was a heart rate they were grateful we were all grateful you know but immediately your mind goes back to that time you didn't find the heart rate yeah are you back in that room right mm-hmm. you know the patient's hair color, what room you're in, whether they had (laughs) the blankets on, whether they had their own clothes on, you see it. Yeah. If the doctor could come, will the doctor be able to come tell her? That's immediately where my mind goes because the worst is when they're like, well, don't say anything. I'll be over in 30 minutes. You're talking to humans here. (laughs) Like that's not a thing. I mean, and, and that was just traffic. I'm not saying that the doctor was being a complete jerk. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, wanted yeah, to yeah. come right away. No, just that, like the fact that we can like keep a secret. We all know what's going on. 30 yeah. minutes is a lifetime at that point. Well, I mean, back when I started, they were very clear that we weren't supposed to say anything. Now I think they've made it more that we can like fudge it and say, we have the ultrasound on. We're not seeing any cardiac activity. And then but we're calling a provider. Is that the thing? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we would, uh, we would call the provider before they got an ultrasound. But. Yeah. Yeah. But to the patient, you're saying like, the we're in it, but like, we're right. Provider just and then I would say, this isn't, you know, this is beyond my level of experience, but I can yeah. tell you, they don't see any cardiac activity. Right. right. You would not leave someone hanging. I did not ask permission to do that. I just realized that that is the human thing to do, but I was also taught to be quiet about it. And like, well, did you tell her? Like I told her exactly what I saw and heard. Like she knows the volume's up. She's been to 14 prenatal appointments. Well, my first hospital also, nobody spoke English. So then you were trying to do it over the phone and nobody was understanding, but usually their doctor spoke whatever language they did. Usually not all the time. So on here within those four clusters, intrusive symptoms are the most common in secondary traumatic symptoms, trauma symptoms, and like recalled images of sights, smells, sounds of a birth that went wrong. Negative changes in mood and cognition were the second most prominent. Nurses reported feeling detached from their emotions and focused on tasks. I mean, I have that even from being a doula. Thinking about the births that go really bad. Sometimes they still bring me to tears. There are some births that I absolutely cannot talk about. And Mm -hmm. I will not go there. Yeah, for sure. And I think focusing on tasks, I mean, that's 100% the nurse thing, right? Yeah. Hard and fast, hard and fast, epi, epi, push, push, push. Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like what you just said, focus on finding the heart rate, nothing else. If you're in your body and you're feeling the feelings, you'd be crying Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. you'd be 
your heart rate would be exploding. You would be sweating and you would be like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling, but you're, you're not doing any of those things. You're finding the heart rate. I mean, well, but in a code, I mean, to be clear, we can't, you know, we, you really can't stop and feel the feelings, which is, I think why we run mock codes constantly because we need to normalize. I mean, NRP by the time I left was second nature. Mm-hmm. Like just doing compressions on a baby, you were just like, la di da, just doing some compressions. So just- is it the chicken or the egg? <laughs> we're taught to do that in an emergency, so we take it everywhere with us. I don't know, but so then, then it becomes and the I, thing we have we, we have to be the one that in an emergency has to keep our heads yeah. in the game. But are we after the emergency's done? Are we given? the chance to get out those feelings. You know, I then later after I started having the panic attacks, I went to my manager and I was just like, I'm constantly worried that something's going to happen because at the time, no one could come help me in the OR. I was completely by myself. We were calling like for trauma surgeons. We were calling Mm -hmm. all the people. And she was like, you're never alone. That's literally what she goes. There's always hands to come help you. And my coworkers were not at just the desk, like twiddling their thumbs. They were all Mm -hmm. in deliveries or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. not like people were actively not coming to help me, but there are times where you're completely alone in a situation where you need more minds than just your own. (laughs) Yes. For them to just brush it over. Like, oh, you'll never be alone. Right. For you to feel for sure. I am smart enough to know that things change so quickly that I am incapable of providing all of the care that this person needs to mm-hmm. survive. And you're telling me that I'm technically not alone because I'm in a building with other people. That's gaslighting on its finest because it comes from your manager. Yeah. And you're told like, no, there's people right here. And you're like, they have two patients all on pit. That is actually not a thing. No one can come and everyone would be safe. You would have to like shut down the unit. You would have to call codes in order for all of those things to happen because we're just riding on this like fine line of safety all the time instead of what that person should have said, which was probably my bad. Thank you for telling me. I'm going to call someone in right now. Right. Well, I mean, this was after the fact, but what she should have said is like, do you want to talk to somebody about this? Yeah. It sounds like you're really anxious yeah. about this. You know, this doesn't need to be flow-blown therapy, Hillary. We had some stupid line you could call at the hospital, right? Didn't you, Mandy? That was supposed to be like helping no. you through your feelings. No, I don't even know, but I I'm pretty sure. Chaplain come one time and gaslight me in a whole new ways. <laughs> and I had multiple people tell me that I was overreacting beyond their expertise level. And I needed to go work that out on my own with EAP, who is a whole bunch of, they were backing up as I was telling them things and like got the sense that like it was too much for EAP. EAP referred me out after five minutes of being in the office. This EAP employee assistant program. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. At least There's she no could have offered one. something like that. I think there was a like you went to a physical building for EAP. I'm pretty sure we had a phone call that. we. No, could... I had to like make an appointment. Oh, I don't know. I didn't. I obviously did not reach out. <laughs> well, also, like what you're saying isn't irrational. Panic attacks. Yes, that's one bucket feeling unsafe and not having enough staff in the OR because you feel like your patient is unsafe, another bucket. That's a legitimate concern. That's not an overreaction. Panic attack. 
we would have to, so that is part of the solutions that we have lists of solutions for coping because what does this say? I'm going to read the sentence. It says, hold on. So this is for PTSD, but it, it feels relatable. Symptoms must last for at least one month, cause significant impairment. So at that point you had identified that anxiety and panic attacks were causing significant impairment enough yeah. to say, Hey, I need help with this because two things are going on. I'm panicking and I feel like my patient is unsafe, which is triggering my panic. And then your therapist would be like, is this irrational? Tell me the clues as to you know what led to this and why are you feeling like this and they would help you reframe your responsibility in it to tell your because your brain is telling you a story around what you think is going on and a lot of times it sounds like what you say your story is is it's your fault well she would just say hillary you're a great nurse i don't know why you feel like that and I'd just be like, what are you talking about? Like the very best nurse on the planet could not handle a severe hemorrhage in the OR on their own. No, can't do CPR by themselves. Like, why are we suddenly thinking that this is not a team sport? <laughs> You're a great soccer player. I don't know why you can't be goalie in all the other positions. Why would you think that? We're always here if you need a kicker. Yeah. We'll be up at concessions. <laughs> yeah. Kind of busy, but you know, if you want to pull us away, then I guess you can. It's really how it feels. It's really how it feels. So I just want to like legitimize your feelings and there are names for this and this is real. And this is like shared experiences among so many nurses that you've told me that the response of nurses was to give you shit for how you were feeling. Yeah. I'd be like, do you guys ever feel anxious before report? Same nurses who had just shouted a slur of expletives about how bad the day was going to be. And they're like, hell no, Hillary. Sorry, I'm not a swearer in my pregnancy nurse life. But I'd be like, okay. And I don't think I even noticed that them saying every time the shift's going to be complete crap was them feeling anxious, but they didn't use that words. Instead, they just shoved all their anxiety on the rest of us, probably. They got mad. They did the other culturally appropriate way of handling of mishandling right feelings or like symptoms which is to yell right or just get complain get mad right well and I even felt like so soon after I started having my panics attack about my thing we had a patient code and they delivered the baby in the room it was right before shift change so two shifts pretty much got the brunt of it and just like as a nurse you feel like you can't even talk about it because you can't tell your husband about it, you know, especially you can say something really crappy happened today. You could probably even say we had to code a patient, but then it has to kind of end because you, you're always so worried that the lawyers are going to call your husband in because you told him that you wanted to pee your pants. You were so nervous and this seems so normal. And then she just had a PE and died, Mm -hmm. you know, even though we got her back, but you know, and a lot of times they'll be like, well, but we got her back. We did such a great job. And you just be like, it doesn't feel like a great job when they're dead. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, it's very lonely sounding, very isolating. You've I also- think they need to be more clear about who we can, 
Cause they're always constantly like, we can only have a protected conference with the lawyer in the room. Right? No. What? They were very clear that after the code happened, we were only to talk about it in a thing where risk management was in the room. That feels abusive. It feels very terrible. So I think, I wonder if other units do that. Yes, Um, other units do it, not every unit. And so I think every time you share like a really scary experience, you're constantly like, well, because that baby can sue me till that baby is 21. You know, it's not like I only have five years for this baby to sue me. They can sue me forever, basically, which by the time I'll probably be dead at 21 the way I'm going, but (laughs) 21 years. These panic attacks kill people. I'm out. (laughs) But because that baby can sue for so long, you're just like, well, I can't talk about this to anyone ever again. This has to hide deep in my soul because I can't bring up. I mean, I guess you could talk to a therapist and just say it just made me super anxious. Dude, that is the perfect power play by hospitals to protect themselves. I just don't, I'd be interesting if you guys had a lawyer on to talk about what our legalities really would be. We will. She's coming. Type of situation. And we'll add that to the list of questions. (laughs) Because like we said earlier, it's very difficult to tell what is real, what is made up, what is told to us so many times in so many ways that makes it so scary that keeps us quiet or keeps us doing the thing or keeps it normal because you're not going to go on the, on the internet and be like, this is just what happened. What do your hospitals say about talking about this? Like you are so scared. HIPAA is real. I've seen people fired nearly on the spot. You know, it takes so long for someone to get back to me. When I say a provider physically harmed someone (laughs) A provider grabbed my body, a nurse like reamed me in the parking lot, made me feel so unsafe. I can't walk to my car. All these things. No one gets back to you. No one gets back to you. No one gets back to you. Someone has a HIPAA complaint in three days, they're fired. Yeah, It's obvious what their priorities are. And it's very clear. They like make a very clear example of them. And they're like, when other people are fired, it is so hard for me to find out why we're all trying to get the tea. We're like, what happened? Were they really sleeping with that person that we really thought they were so like, I need to know what is going on. Did they fail? No one will tell you. You have to go find that person working at their new job and ask them the tea or know their significant other and get the tea under the table. But when someone's fired for HIPAA, they almost like write an email. Patient identification information was given out. Yep. Mm -hmm. No question. Like no smoke and mirrors. It is like, they got fired because of this da, 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 da. Hmm. and yeah it's very clear so they keep you very quiet but they also prevent you from debriefing truly they prevent you from processing debriefing sharing yeah so we had nurses from night shift where it happened who had to stick around for like two hours which obviously a lot of night shift nurses can't do because husband has to go to work they have to take care of kids so a lot of them didn't even make it to the debrief but they were just like don't really talk about it till they get here because risk management's on their way, you know? Risk management and legal. And who is that protecting? I mean, I, I doubt it's protecting us because unlikely the nurse actually is going to get right. sued. Exactly. Or Except if they do, the hospital age. will. Although, I don't know. In your mind, you're like, will the hospital cover me if I mm-hmm. talk to my friend? If I start to cry at the nurse's station about what I just saw, you know, which was obvious. no. We do not talk about this at the nurse's station at all because we definitely don't want any other patient thinking they could just die at any minute. Right, right, <laughs> right. Facts, y'all can. <laughs> it's 
happening. happening. But you could die on your way to the hospital. I mean, right. It's like, you're right. You're hiding what everyone knows is going on. It seems so bizarre. So the hush hush also adds to the fear of it. If no one's ever talking about it, we're not coping and we're not actually processing what happened and what we could have done better. And maybe there was nothing. And maybe that's the conversation we need to have. It, we did literally everything we could have done. Nobody could have done anything better. Sometimes these things happen. If you're never allowed to talk about them, it increases the fear in everybody. They do do, I should say, they do do that M&M. And this did have an M&M case go where doctors and nurses and techs and whoever was involved goes and they talk about it with protected legal counsels. The M&M is a protected area, but you know, it's like two months later after they've all reviewed the medical records, it's definitely not like right away. And it's not about your feelings. It's definitely about facts and how we could prevent this. But you know, when it's an NBR fluid embolism is, is then ultimately you leave thinking every single patient could do mm-hmm. this on me. There's mm-hmm. literally nothing we can do. We can have some skills, like what did they give her? Benadryl. And they thought that was mm-hmm. like amazing. I was like, well, Benadryl will save us. It's fine. So Hillary, just the way that you stated that, I just want to highlight any patient could do this to me is very comes deep from the core of working in modern medicine, deep from the core of that. Like you have experienced so much harm that was how I could say we, I don't mean to put this all in you. We've experienced as nurses so much harm from these practices, which you've explained multiple incidences where you didn't feel supported. You didn't feel safe. You brought it up. You were ignored. You were dismissed. You were gaslit. Even as a team, you were told like, we don't have anxiety. We just drink a lot or you're not allowed to debrief here. This is unsafe. We're never going to like talk about feelings, even though we know this was traumatic for everyone. We're going to ignore it and make it feel like a you problem. So many hurts come from being this care provider that you're trying to do your best. You're very skilled at it. You've been doing it for a long time and you've continued to learn the whole time. I know, I know this about you same, like we would get the articles, we'd go to the conferences, keep trying to be better. And it still feels like, or the language inside of that place is, she's trying to die on me. They're blowing clots for me. This could happen to me at any time. The person who has the most risk going into a hospital being cared for is the patient. But we go in feeling completely attacked all the time. We have no way to resolve it. What you're saying, you've tried, you tried, you went to your manager, you went to your team, you tried to talk it out. You tried to name it. You tried to get help. And it's like, doesn't exist. Nope. Not my problem. You got to go figure it out or just work through it. All these things that were just like, no one else, no one else feels like that. One, we know it's not true. And it feels like we're being hurt over and over, or it feels like it's getting worse over and over. You're not talking about anxiety in your first year. You're talking about anxiety in your 20th year. Yeah. So- I will say that I was thinking about like, why did it get worse? And I think I just had a manager who I hope is not listening to this, but <laughs> who just wasn't into the feelings. The manager before her was 100% into the feelings. Hey Hill, how are you? That, that seemed like a rough shift. Do you want to come to my office and talk? Oh, I've never you know? worked with a manager like that. That sounds safe. 
Yeah. I had a very Her. good, she was my favorite manager ever. And in my previous hospital, we had nurses that would kind of take on that role. We went through managers like candy at that mm -hmm. hospital. Mm -hmm. So we had nurses, you know, even some of the hardest nurses that I worked with that were, you know, closed off in, in general would, would pull you aside and be like, man, that seemed rough. How are you? You know, and when you know that like yeah. this nurse who normally is not a friendly person, <laughs> not warm and just, fuzzy, right. Was taking her time to be like, you know, and she really did want to know how you're doing because she normally wouldn't ask. Right. Right. She didn't care unless she was like, mm, I'm just going to jump off the bridge on the way home. That <laughs> shit is real. It's validating. And it's. Yeah. So I think the nurses that are on the unit can have a, an effect on it and the mm -hmm. manager can have an effect on it. And, you know, and if you don't have management, your nurses can. And they're supposed to be advocating for you because they want you to come back. Right. Yeah. What you're saying is the cause like happened because of these are symptoms of secondary traumatic stress. I'm just going to quick read them because you touched on all of them. Fear of litigation and more medicalized practice. <laughs> not, not laughing. Ha ha. <laughs> Changes in practice. We've seen that loss of faith in birth. Loss of empathy. Either if that didn't happen to you, you just named a few nurses who ex possibly experienced it. And some of the solutions. So those are themes that have been noted to have come out of secondary traumatic stress that affect you, your team, and all of your patients, which I think is important for everyone to know going in because that's what's happening to all of our staff. There, it's not just like a Hillary problem, a Mandy issue that she just keeps harping on all of the guests on here, like talk about these themes in other ways without all the time naming what these are, because we've never heard this before or never been given this language, or we've never been like given this visual of what is going on and why we feel this way. It's an everybody problem inside of the hospital. And in my opinion, this could be at any hospital and these themes can still show up. Yeah. I will say I didn't have a loss of faith in birth. I started celebrating hard when things went well. <laughs> like yeah. I'd be like, this was amazing. Best birth ever. We'd high five. Like everyone would be like, birth can be amazing. So we really tried to focus on the fact that most births, thank goodness, turn out a-okay. And, and that just, you know, when you have like this, this beautiful family with a beautiful baby, there really is no better high. I missed that part. Yeah. It was, it's mm -hmm. just like, that. Well, what was that? Like once a shift. So not even worth it. <laughs> not once a shift for me, but the <laughs> provider that wanted to induce everyone at 35 weeks to prevent all the things that she felt <laughs> uncomfortable about sounds like a loss in faith in birth and yeah. without even really knowing it, you're like, no, no, yeah. no, I'm here. I love birth. And you're like, but you literally don't think it works most of the time. Yeah. That's so sad to me. It hurts my heart that they've seen so many bad things. And sometimes it only takes one, but that's sad. It's just so sad to me. You said that some protective measures around this and how you felt were protective for you, or at least Are you mitigated some, some of the harm. No, some of it I think was out of fear. Like, you know, the, the doctor who has a stillbirth then wants to induce everybody. Some of it was because of money. And you could hundred percent see that because we had doctors who would C-section everyone because they knew if they C-section them, they would get the money. <laughs> Ew. Well, that's a little traumatic. Yeah. So let's just leave involved. it on that episode. No, we're, we're coming <laughs> up with solutions and you can't even stop me. You've already <laughs> named two. And one of them is a published evidence-based, which I know like 
regardless of whether you knew or not, you know, nurses need nurses, nurses need peer support. And it is in the research. That's what they identified as the number one key from recovering from a traumatic birth. And I'll say from just working in the trauma of being in the hospital, I think peer support. And that's what you already said. I will plug the nurse circle because that is the trauma-informed birth nurse peer support group that we have going on, uh, which is community outside of your unit. So if you don't have this peer support, you can go find it, shop for it, get into a community of other nurses who are on the path of trying to feel better about their care, change their care, view trauma for what it is and work in a trauma-informed way. Reframing beliefs. We talked about that kind of the story in our mind. We're that creates that we create around what happened that's self-protective. And so if we can reframe or make meaning of the event, even outside of that space, like therapy or even peer support of like peer counseling. So like you're giving someone, I did this this year. It was so helpful. I didn't have to pay a therapist. I didn't have to go through EAP because they had already like failed me. <laughs> I would go to a nurse and we would be like, set a time. And we read a book while we did this so that we could like be present without being harmed or without being hurt or activated. And if we were, we would go like set up this plan for getting help ourselves if we were activated by somebody's story. But it was no like trauma dumping. It was like 15 minutes or 30 minutes of solid loving attention. And then that other nurse would talk. And I would like say nothing or I would just ask, what do you think that means? Or how did you feel about that? Or what's coming up in your body? Simple, just active listening type stuff. And we could get curious around the beliefs that we were telling ourselves, like that it was our fault, that we could have done something, that we had the power to change it, that what your manager said about not being alone is actually bullshit. (laughs) Facts. I feel alone. Therefore, maybe my patient was unsafe because of the staffing issue. It sounds simple, but it kind of needs to continue for us to change the way we tell ourselves the story, because the story that we're being told, as you have shown us so many examples today, is harmful or potentially harmful and can be really confusing based on what we're feeling and what we know to be true. And then the last solution I have is, well, I have two, taking a step away from the work. I know it was not going to get the response, like (laughs) loving response, but you and I both have done that. We did it wholly. I just mean like, if you can, one step would be like one shift a month away. Or some people turn to like PRN. Could you take a little step away to help in the case that you're being harmed or experiencing, like you were experiencing physical symptoms and it was affecting your whole life, take a step away to do the work. And it's giving you a step away from that harm, that like consistent gaslighting and storytelling, the challenges that you're facing that you're not getting support around. And then my last solution is naturally changing the nursing standard of care, which is trauma-informed birth nurse program. So going into shifting to a trauma-informed standard of care, finding that trauma exists in everyone and getting more curious and less responsible for what's going on and for outcomes within yourself and within your patients without the responsibility of, 
I have to cover up for this doctor. I have to protect the hospital. I have to protect the patient. I have to understand what all that is for everyone. It's not it. (laughs) That's impossible. And that's why it feels really bad. That's what I got. So it shouldn't feel that bad. It shouldn't feel so, you shouldn't be responsible because you're not responsible for it. Yeah. But well, and ultimately so many nurses left that unit. And I think the hospital just kind of like, what we don't know what to do. (laughs) Why would that happen? That can be someone's solution. It is a symptom. It's not always ideal. Folks don't want to. Labor nurses want to support labor. They don't want to support feeding tubes. They don't want to support traumas. They don't want to support hospice or psych. They want to support labor. And so that's, I think, a real challenge with specialties like labor and delivery is I like the work. I love the work. It's the job that is hurting me. And and seeing the hurt in patients is difficult. So I think going through the peer support, the reframing, the making meaning, switching to trauma-informed care, standard of care, understanding your own trauma, working through that journey, understanding how people bring their own traumatic baggage into their births. It becomes uncovered. It is not your fault. It's going to happen. It's part of the territory. How can we still support them safely? That's supportive of us because those things go hand in hand. And then you're like, yeah, I still am out of here. Great. Right. That's like a informed choice at that point. Yeah. You are doing the work and you're like, it's this place that I have to get out or I have to go half time or I have to go to a different hospital. I think it's still healthy and it's still maybe the, the thing that happens. Hillary, thanks for sharing so much with us. This was a lot. A lot. This was so good though. Like this was so good. How do you feel? I need to finish some TikToks now. Oh yeah. You got the to-do list going. Okay. Well, I hope because I'm you, a nurse, like what am I like, supposed to do now? Right. Be busy. I am going to go outside and move my body today. Cause this was a, this was a tough one. <laughs> I hope you can do something grounding so that you're not sitting with these feelings and they can move through, but I appreciate you bringing them up with us. I think it's deal. just nice to know it's normal. It's yeah. disgustingly normal. You are the most. I don't know that that is true, but thank you. <laughs> we're all on the weird spectrum. Like we're all <laughs> on the like dorky, not doing all of the healthy things that we should be doing for our mental, physical health. We're all on that spectrum. Yeah. It's just part true. of the journey. Go team. Go team. team. Thank you so much, Hillary. It was (laughs) good to talk to you. We'll put your contact information down below so everyone can read blogs and connect with you online as well. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye, y'all. Thanks for joining us today. We wanted to leave you with a quick stat and something to think about until we see you next time. According to a 2018 report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the prevalence of sexual harassment in academic medicine is almost double that of other science and engineering specialties. This presents a serious danger that ripples into patient safety, clinical outcomes, and burnout, which leads to costly loss of talent. How much safer could medicine be if nurses and physicians weren't also battling sexual harassment day in and day out? If you or anyone you know has a story to share, please contact us on Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast. We'd love to share your story.